Our scripture reading this morning is Psalms 42 and 43. They can be found on pages 469 and 470 in your pew Bible, as well as on the screen behind me. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How long will I go with the throng and lead the possession to the house of God? With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God for, again, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, and all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. But the day of the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy? As with deadly wounds in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, and I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is God's word. Good morning. And congratulations again uh, for making it to church on time this morning. I think as Brandon already mentioned that, it does seem like an unnecessary risk asking the youth pastor to preach on the first Sunday of the summer schedule. Brandon did check in on me this week. You know that church is at 9.30 this week, right? You have two alarms set, whatever you need to do. But this morning, we're not only shifting into our summer schedule, we're also launching a new preaching series, which Brandon already mentioned, Summer in the Psalms. And over the next couple of months, we're going to be exploring book two of the Psalms, beginning this morning with chapters 42 and 43, which were originally written as one song with three parts. The poetry of the Psalms to many Christians is a great comfort and a critical expression of a range of emotions that come from living in a broken world. John Calvin described the book of Psalms as an an anatomy of all parts of the soul, For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. 
Rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, and perplexities with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. In the pages of this inspired hymn book, voice is given to the otherwise inexpressible pain and incalculable joy which are part of a redeemed life in a rebellious world. But for some of us, poetry is like a flowery language that we never learned how to speak. It's a little bit, for me, like going to an art museum. When you go to certain cities around the world, people tell you that you absolutely have to see the Met or the National Gallery or the Prado or whatever the big museum of that country is. And so I've been to each of those places, and these museums are big enough to get lost in, to spend days and days exploring. But I rock it through in about 15 minutes. Because without someone there holding my hand and explaining to me why this painting of a bowl of fruit is important, all I see is a bowl of fruit. When I got to see some of Picasso's paintings in London several years ago, I stood inches away from some of the most famous works by one of the most celebrated artists in the last century, and all I thought was, this guy needs some more practice painting fruit. (laughs) Poetry can be like that for me, and I think that's because I'm a generally impatient person. When I read narrative in the Bible, I get easy answers to my questions. Who, what, when, where, why? The New Testament epistles get right to the point, saying things like, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You would have to be some sort of an interpretive contortionist to misunderstand that. But poetry requires us to be patient. Straight answers are a lot harder to come by. We have to sit with it, to read over it again and again, to let it float around in our minds as we're driving to work, as we're cooking dinner, as we're drifting off to sleep. For those of us with shorter-than-average attention spans, it's something that we must apply ourselves to. It doesn't just happen. It takes effort and patience. But on top of that, this morning as we begin uh, summer looking at this poetry and scripture, we're also looking at a lament psalm this morning. About half of the book of Psalms is composed of grief-stricken outcries for God's intervention, and chapters 42 and 43 are good examples of that. In our passage this morning, the psalmist says that his tears have been his only food, that his soul is in distress, and that he is surrounded by his adversaries. These are the words of a person trapped in grief. Lament is a very common genre of scriptural literature, but it is not something that we hear very much about in American churches very often, if ever. We tend to avoid the topic, if we're honest. I often do. It's uncomfortable. Wouldn't we rather just focus on all the happy things? In Jessica and I's first house, I noticed that there were cracks in the drywall in certain parts of the house. I was particularly concerned by a large crack above the door to the master bathroom. It was a big crack. I knew that the reason it was there was because the foundation of the house was settling and that that sort of thing is relatively common in that part of the country. Uh, and uh, that it's only sometimes cause for real concern. And I was concerned a little bit about it because it was a good-sized crack. But I didn't know what to do about it, so I did the only thing I could think to do, and I just painted over it. 
But again, after a year, the crack would reappear as the foundation settled a little bit more, and so I would paint over it again. And this went on and on and on for several years until I had a a bright idea that we should just move. (laughs) In the American church, we've become really good at painting over the cracks. It's not that there's nothing wrong. It's not that we're free from suffering or grief or sadness. Obviously, that's not the case. We all know that there are cracks there just under the surface of the paint that we've applied year after year after year. We all see things around us every day which cause us to wonder, as the psalmist did, where is my God right now? And honestly, we don't know what to do with that. Lament in Scripture gives us words for our grief and our pain. But it expresses weakness, subjection, and the need for help. And those character traits simply are not celebrated in our culture. Even though grief is part of the human experience that we all share in common, it's often swept under the rug. To admit sadness or grief feels like admitting to a failure to trust in God's promises. We don't like being sad, let alone talking about it with other people. But perhaps more, more significantly, we don't like feeling like our sadness is stronger than we are. And admitting that we feel that way is often unacceptable. We rightly understand that time with our church family is supposed to fill us up with encouragement. But I fear that we have all too often taken the easy path which does not face our sorrow honestly. It's easier to pretend that everything is fine. That when people ask us how we're doing, to say, it's great, I'm good, fine. It's easier for us to do that than it is for us to deal with the sorrow. But lament in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Bible shows us that it's okay and it's even good to be brutally honest with God and with ourselves. Lament is the tool that God has given us in Scripture to process our grief. And that is supposed to be part of what we do here when we gather during this time every week. We don't know much about the sons of Korah to whom this psalm is attributed if you read the the heading of chapter 42. What we do know about the sons of Korah is from the book of First Chronicles, where they are listed among the descendants of Levi, who were appointed specifically by David to be temple musicians. Their job, given to them by David, was to lead the people of God in musical worship at the temple. So we know that this song was written for people to use together, corporately, at the temple. It is not a celebratory song. It doesn't say very many of the things that we typically associate with worship today. It does have a chorus and a structure that's familiar to us. It's reminiscent of a modern song, but that is where the similarities end. It is a grief-stricken plea for rescue from a heartbroken person to sing alongside God's people. Not all lament psalms are like this. Some are individual and personable personal contemplative prayers to God, but the content of this psalm, like so many others, is vague in its setting because it's designed to be applicable and useful to anyone who is overwhelmed with sadness. Some of us in this room are right there this morning, overwhelmed. And for those of you who are like this psalmist, wondering where God is, I pray that the words of this psalm are a comfort in learning what it is designed to teach us. 
But even if the words of this text do not resonate with where you are in life right now, they are for you. Lament is something we should do together because it teaches us three important things. When we lament together, we learn that we are not alone. We learn how to vocalize our grief, and we learn how to meet suffering when it comes. First, corporate lament reminds us that we are not alone. Often in difficult seasons of life, it can feel like we are suffering in a way that no one else understands, or that if we confess what we're grieving, that we will be ostracized from others who will tell us to simply trust God more. That is what we often fear we will hear from others, or it is the voice we hear in our own head. Just be happier. Quit being so bogged down in sadness all the time. That was the message that I read recently in a blog by one of America's most popular pastors concerning this psalm. Just pick happiness. When you wake up in the morning, determine that you're going to get out of bed on the right side of the bed. It's the cheap, insincere, and ineffective message that reveals that we often have no idea what we're doing. Scripture does instruct us to rejoice in the gospel, but sometimes it is not that simple. Lament is the language that God gives us for when it is not physically possible to simply be happy. When grief and mourning are the only emotions that we're capable of, God gives us songs of lament. And echoes of that truth run through this psalm. The speaker has been mocked by outsiders who have ridiculed him, asking, where is your God now? And he says that his tears have been his only food, and that they themselves, his tears, have also mocked him, saying, where is your God? Three times he repeats the refrain, why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He inwardly asks, why have you forgotten The external struggle with adversaries and the circumstances of the psalmist's life have created an internal struggle in his own heart, a struggle that all of God's people can understand. We may know in our head that God is sovereign and that his love for us is unbreakable, but the circumstances of life make it hard for our hearts to know and believe the same thing. And that's why the psalmist returns to the chorus three times, speaking directly to himself like he's talking in a mirror. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, because someday you will praise him from your very soul again. He is your salvation. That internal struggle is scary to face. And vocalizing it makes us feel vulnerable. So no one in deep, deep sorrow wants to hear what ring in our ears as mere platitudes. No one wants to be told when they feel this way to cheer up. Instead of making us feel better, they often make us feel like people neither understand nor care what we're dealing with. So painful circumstances in life are often coupled with feelings of intense loneliness and isolation. For the psalmist, that feeling of isolation was significant. He looks back in the first section of this psalm on the life that he used to have in verse 4, where he describes coming into God's temple, leading God's people there for worship. It was a very different season of life for him, where because now he finds himself in the wilderness of Jordan, reflecting on his current circumstances, cut off from the temple and that joyous season of life. 
which stands in stark contrast to where he is now. Years ago, um, I got to go snorkeling, which I was pretty excited to do. I'd never been snorkeling before. I grew up about a thousand miles from a coastline, so I've always been fascinated with the ocean and a little leery of it. But a friend of mine who snorkeled a lot took me to a good spot for beginners, and we set out, and we were swimming in this little cove along a wave break, uh, and I was enjoying myself looking at the little fish about 15 feet beneath me on the seafloor, and my confidence was growing. I felt pretty good about what I was able to do with a snorkel. And so we swam out a little further to the end of the wave break, and when we got to the end of the wave break, I saw the seafloor drop off like a cliff into the inky blackness of the ocean depths, and I freaked out. I was just imagining all of the monsters and fangly fish that were waiting just just over the edge to drag me down into the ocean depths. And I got out of the water as soon as I could. The Hebrew people felt like I do about the open ocean. It represents chaos and the unknown. It's mysterious and it's perilous. And it must have been the obvious choice for the writer of this psalm to capture the chaotic circumstances of his life. In verse 7, he says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. It's as if he's been tossed to and fro, adrift in a stormy sea. It is the language of a totally disorienting terror that makes it feel like you can't breathe or find solid ground. When we feel that way, we need to know that we are not alone in the storm. Others in your life may not understand your sorrow. They probably will not. Some people, by God's grace, will never experience such a terror. But he's called us, God has called us to carry one another's burdens, to lament together over the brokenness of our brothers and sisters. He's called us to more than simply meeting on Sunday mornings, but to express the pain we feel for those in our family of faith who are broken. Beyond that, we have a Savior who experienced grief of his own, who prayed his own prayer asking for deliverance from suffering, and who suffered as his people suffer. We must lament together so that we will know we are not alone. Secondly, lament teaches us how to vocalize our grief. After the Israelites had been delivered from their slavery in Egypt, they came into the wilderness where they had no food or water. And even though they had literally just seen God's incredible power over creation displayed for them, they despair. And it doesn't take very long before they begin grumbling against Moses and against God himself, saying things like, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that God has brought us out here into the desert to die? When they came to the border of the land that God had promised to give them as a new home, they sent in spies to check it out. And when the spies returned with the report that the land was filled with intimidating adversaries, the people again fail to remember remember God's power and promise for them. In fear... They rebel against his plan for them. There is a wrong way to endure struggle, and the Israelites nailed it. Even though they've seen God display his love for them and his power to back it up, they turn away in fear. The disciples did the same thing. They had spent three years with Jesus, walking around with him and witnessing his incredible power and hearing his promises of restoration and resurrection. But on the night of his arrest, they fled. When confronted, his 
most outspoken supporter, Peter, denied even having ever met Jesus before. The fear they felt in their hearts overwhelmed what they knew to be true in their heads. It's like looking out the window uh, from the top floor of a tall building. For people with a, a serious fear of heights, it's hard to even approach the glass. Even though they know, right, they're rational and they know that there is no chance that they're going to fall. There's no chance the building is suddenly going to turn on its side somehow. But the fear of looking out that window can grip their hearts. The fear that they feel in their heart can overwhelm what they know to be true in their heads. We've already seen in this psalm that the speaker is wrestling with the same sort of dilemma. He's like the man who said to Jesus in Mark chapter 9, I believe, help my unbelief. In his current circumstances, he feels abandoned by God, left, in, left to toil in this misery. But there is something else going on here, something that his head knows but his heart has forgotten. So rather than turning away from God in his grief, he leans into what he knows to be true about God. There's an important difference between grumbling, as the Israelites did, and lament, as we see it in the Psalms. Grumbling is driven by fear, and it assumes the worst. Lament that we see in Scripture and in this psalm cries out, God, I need you to be who you've said you are. There's no way I survive this unless you are who you say you are. When we bring our grief and our sorrow to God, as the psalmist does in this passage, we give him the chance to prove that he is who he says he is, that his power is sufficient and his love is enough. We are invited to lay the greatest challenges of our life and to our faith at his feet because he can handle it, because he is who he says he is. Lament, as opposed to grumbling, is expectant. It is hopeful. All but two of the Psalms of Lament in the book of Psalms turn toward the hopeful anticipation that God will redeem this present suffering. All but two. With words like, vindicate me, deliver me, defend me, as our psalmist cries out. You are the rescuer of those who call on your name. Rescue me now from this. Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. In the darkness of suffering, only the merciful appearance of God's light and the guidance of his truth will lead us to joy. And lament teaches us how to vocalize our grief, to do so with hope. And that hope is built on good theology, which is our third point this morning. Lament teaches us how to meet suffering when it comes. A critical part of every battle strategy is the element of surprise. If your enemy knows what you're planning and he has the time to prepare for it, you lose a significant advantage. When the Allied forces invaded Normandy Beach in June of 1944, it was to the utter dismay of German military experts who had been expecting an attack hundreds of miles away. And even though the Allies had over 130,000 troops and 12,000 aircraft, it was their carefully coordinated deception of German intelligence that gave them the edge that they needed to break through fortified German defenses. Had the Germans had time to prepare, it's highly likely that they would have been able to hold off the Allied forces, but they weren't ready. And as a result, the tide began to turn in the most significant military conflict that the world has ever seen, 
We are naive if we think that we will live our lives without ever feeling sorrow. And when it comes, it will not send a warning. It will come like a bolt of lightning. It will be swift and sudden. It will overwhelm our theological defenses if they are not fortified. One of the things that our students have heard me teach over and over and over again is that we must do the work, the hard work, of developing good theology now while the sun is shining so that when it sets and darkness falls, we will have a firm foundation to stand on. We must get it into our bones that God is sovereign and merciful, and we need to do that work before the storm comes. If we live our lives as if a day will never come that tests our faith, then when that day does come, it will shatter what feeble trust we had in God. The psalmist in our passage this morning knew that God was sovereign. He had good theology. He knew who God was. He knew that his present suffering was not the result of an unlucky roll of the dice. He says, your breakers and your waves have gone over me. They are the providence of his God. What a difficult, painful reality to face. We often rightly attribute happy things to God's providence. The things that we desire to have when we receive them, we thank God for them. But his providence is not limited to giving us what we want. He led Joseph through betrayal, slavery, false conviction, abandonment, and resettlement in a foreign country in order to fulfill a covenant promise he had made generations earlier as part of a commitment to fulfill an even bigger covenant promise that he would maintain for the next several centuries. Joseph couldn't see any of that. But his life was full of difficulty that was part of God's gracious, sovereign care for creation. That biblical truth will be impossibly difficult for us to face if we wait until we're in the midst of grief to learn it. The hope of this psalm's third section, chapter 43, trains us to hope and trust in God's goodness, even when his goodness leads us through seasons of suffering. It trains us how to respond. The psalmist here brings his grief and his sorrow to the only one who can answer it, and he cries out to God a desire to be near to him again, to be rescued from this darkness and this strife, because he knows that God alone can answer that plea. And that, perhaps, is the most important lesson that we learn from lament. When waves and breakers overwhelm us, we meet them. We must meet them with the anchor of good theology. And that creates in us an even greater longing for God's presence. The true nature of the psalmist's concern, which we see in the opening verses of chapter 42, is a thirst for God's presence. He wants more and more of God himself, to be nearer, to behold his glory more. And that thirst, that longing, which fills this lament, is ultimately a blessing. In our lament, we can see all that we lack, and we can see more clearly the one, the only one, 
who can satisfy our need. In the midst of the exilic period, when God had sent foreign armies to capture and kidnap his people, he gave them promises of his continuing love to them and of their eventual restoration, that he would one day vindicate them and bring them home, and that promise was to be the basis of their hope for a better future. And so he tells them, when the poor and needy seek water, when and there is thirst for water, and there is no water, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. On the very darkest day, God's people rest on his promise. Because we know that he has secured a salvation for us that no earthly circumstance can compromise. The three sections of this psalm are organized into a look back first when the speaker was worshiping with God among his people and in his presence, a look at the present when he has been driven into the wilderness and surrounded by adversaries mocked by people who ask him, where is your God now? And a hopeful look at the future, which is built on a trust that God will be who he says he is, that he will not forsake his people. And so he begs God to send his light and his truth to guide him to God's holy dwelling. His longing is to be near once more, to be in God's temple again, to feel his protection again. It's exactly how we feel when some joy has been ripped from our fingers, a longing to return. But we have an even greater hope than the psalmist did. Rather than looking back at a temple that we used to go visit, a better temple has come to us. In Christ, a better temple has come to dwell among his people. He has not forsaken us. He has come nearer to us than the psalmist could have asked or imagined to ask. In Christ, we have a temple whose requirement for justice is met fully and whose rescue is secured completely. And our lament in this present suffering is full of hope that God will complete the work that he has begun, that he secured for us on the cross. Let us rejoice this morning in the God who gives us lament for when our souls are downcast within us so that we will know we are not alone, so that we will have, so that God will give us the words for our grief and so that we will be ready to face suffering when it comes. Will you pray with me? God, we're thankful uh, this morning that we can gather with you by your Spirit in your presence. We ask for more and more and more of you, that you would send your light and your truth to guide us to your holy dwelling, that in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of the grief that overwhelms us, God, that you would dwell among us that you would remind us that we are not alone, that you would continue to give us words for our grief, that you would equip us to face suffering when it comes. We are your people, and you are our God. And we praise you this morning in your son's name. Amen.